0: In almost every book of carols, there appears one of the most rousing and spirited of Christmas songs. It even appears in the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer, though its author was once forbidden to appear in the Church of England. As you can guess, a fascinating story goes with our Christmas fantasy today. But talk about fascinating things. You'll be more than fascinated with this suggestion of ideas for Christmas from a friend of ours. John and Charles were such an oddly contrasting pair that you'd have hardly thought they were brothers. But then there is room for varied personalities in a big family. Charles was the 18th child, and I don't know how many more followed him. Perhaps even his somewhat distracted father, a clergyman in the Church of England, also lost count. But different though they were, John and Charles shared one zealous goal. They both became Church of England clergy, and in both of them burned an ambition to rouse the people to a revived devotion to religion. John did it with fiery sermons and seemingly inexhaustible energy. Charles, milder and often far from well, worked more quietly in his study, writing hymns that the people could sing. Neither John or Charles knew where their efforts would lead, but they succeeded so well in inspiring a religious revival that people whom they had interested took things in their own hands. Instead of strengthening the Church of England, these converts split away from it entirely. John and Charles were swept along with them, caught in an unexpected tide of their own eloquence. To the end of their days, they maintained, They were Church of England clergymen, but the world and the Church of England thought differently. They were denied the use of Church of England pulpits, so they preached and sang their hymns on street corners, in barns, in country cow pastures. And whether they ever intended it or not, John and Charles earned for themselves the reputation of being those rebel Wesley brothers, those Methodists. On their leadership was founded the Methodist Church, Certainly had got a good start with John Wesley preaching his sermons, even traveling to colonial America where he preached over 40,000 sermons. Charles went with him. A job assured him as secretary to the governor of Georgia. But the southern climate sapped his strength. Or perhaps his energetic brother John set too rugged a pace. At any rate, Charles returned to England and continued to write his inspiring hymns. Even on his deathbed, too weak to hold it, while his wife wrote it down. Neither John nor Charles of England. To the end, they were labeled rebels and outlaws. But Charles did get some recognition from the church that had ordained him. It happened that when the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer was being revised and reprinted, the typesetter came up against a problem. The text failed to fill the page. So what to do? A man of initiative, he took matters in his own hands. He scanned through a small volume titled Hymns and Sacred Poems, authored by one Reverend Charles Wesley. Ah, here was a poem of about the right length, and a good rousing one, too. And into type it went, and out it came in the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer. There were, it is said, several efforts made to have the hymn deleted in future editions. But the people liked it, and so it stayed. Almost a hundred years later, the Englishman, Dr. Cummings, adapted a ringing chorus written by Mendelssohn to fit the words. And it turned out to be a lasting combination. And a final irony you may appreciate, the music had been written by Mendelssohn to celebrate the anniversary of printing. So even the typesetter who slipped Charles Wesley back into the Church of England by way of its prayer book, gets a sort of a remote salute for his effort. A rather surprising accumulation of coincidence. Perhaps Mendelssohn would have been most surprised of all, for in writing his chorus, he remarked to a friend who admired the rhythm of it, Yes, it does have a swing that carries it along. Perhaps it could be adopted into a march or a processional for a parade. Of course, there's one thing, It's quite unsuited for. It will never do for sacred words. How wrong Mendelssohn was is proved in today's Christmas Fantasy Carol, preserved for us by a type-center swim. Hark! The Herald Angels sing. a clergyman's son outlawed from his church and a famous composer and an indiscreet printer add to our Christmas fantasy something to sing about. But here, too, is something to sing about in the Christmas values offered by a friend of ours. autumn stars are bright, but oh, the loveliest of stars are those on Christmas night. That night they are a part of earth, the snow, the angels' wings, the sparkling hearth, the candle glow, all gay and friendly things. They are the lighted window panes, they are the children's smiles, the lantern hung the carol sung across the snowy miles. They silver all the roofs of town. They glisten on the tree. A kind of starry wonder lies on everything we see. This Christmas and through all the year may heaven its peace impart. May all your roads be radiant. May stars be in your heart. Christmas, its stockings hung hopefully at a chimney, its carols ringing the rafters, its candlelight and star-tipped trees, holly and mistletoe, all add enchantment to the yuletide. Take holly, a familiar part of the season. Did you know that holly, ancient superstition of the season, once had white berries until it was fashioned into a crown to be worn on a cross in Calvary? Since that time, its berries are forever stained, blood-red. A quaint belief that adds symbolic emphasis to each thorny green holly leaf and red glowing berry that adorns your gift packages or decorates your table. Some think the holly blessed with holy blood is a powerful charm and pin it to their doors to ward off evil. And speaking of Christmas berries, the pearly white berries of the mistletoe have a special significance as well, and a more romantic one. Each one, according to ancient belief, is full payment for a kiss. And watch your step. Don't spend this magic coin carelessly, for if you observe tradition faithfully, when the mistletoe is out of berries, you are out of kisses. thing you'll never run short of, and that's an idea or two from a friend of ours. (laughs) ¶¶ A moment ago, I was speaking of the tradition of paying mistletoe berries for Christmas kisses. Perhaps you may, with a shrug, decide to disregard the tradition. Let me give you fair warning. Pay for those kisses honestly, or you'll risk the anger of Frigga, queen of all the Norse gods. She it was who set the price for each kiss long ago. Why, any queen goddess would concern herself with such trivialities makes a good Christmas story. It seemed that Queen Frigga had a son, in whom she thought the sun rose and set. And she was right, for he was Balder, the sun god himself. Everyone loved Balder, the flowers that turned their heads to follow his path, the men who thanked him for their crops, the other gods who admired his might and beauty and his constancy. Everyone loved Balder except Loki, the god of mischief. Loki was not popular... But it never occurred to him that perhaps his own nasty disposition and his unpleasant practical jokes had anything at all to do with it. No, Loki was quite sure that if only Balder were out of the way, the rest of the gods would suddenly discover Loki's charm and idolize him instead. Getting Balder out of the way was quite a trick, but then tricks were Loki's stock in trade. He did a lot of brooding and finally thought he'd hit on a surefire solution. The midwinter festival of the gods, he judged, would be a good time to put it into effect. Balder, as always, was the guest of honor, for the festival celebrated the change from shortening days to lengthening ones, and Balder, the god of the sun, was crowned in gratitude. (laughs) Everyone was merry, singing, playing games, till Loki proposed a game of his own. Let's see how invincible Balder really is. Come on, everyone knows that nothing that grows on land or sea can harm him, but let's see who can come the closest to hitting him with a lance, a sling, sword, or arrow. Frigga knew that what Loki said was true, but she mistrusted this clever little screamer. Balder, however, amiably agreed to the game, and the other gods shouted enthusiasm. Lances and arrows launched in turn at Balder, turned magically aside. Steel blades could not touch him. Finally, Loki drew Balder's best friend to the shooting line, saying, Here, you haven't tried yet. Use my bow and arrow. This arrow didn't fly aside, but went straight to Balder's heart. Balder fell, and the whole of creation turned black. Even Loki was frightened by his triumph, and fled to the caves of the mountain dwarfs. Gods and men alike shivered in the internal dark and cold, but there was still a hope. If every living thing would pray for Baldur's return, even the plant that had furnished the wood for the fatal arrow, then Baldur's son would rise again. And across the world, weeping Frigga went, searching for the one thing that would restore her beloved son. Each plant, each bird, each beast, fish, and man agreed to add their prayers to hers. But the plant, the one did not grow on land or sea, was yet to be found. Leaning warily against an ancient oak, she pondered the puzzle, and then, looking up through the dark branches, she knew the answer, the mistletoe. It clung to the branches of the oak and lived on air alone. Hopefully, she cried out to the mistletoe, and the mistletoe confessed. Yes, it had given its branches to Loki, but it had not known his evil intentions. Of all things in creation, the mistletoe was the saddest, broken by both grief and guilt. Hardly had the mistletoe spoken when a golden glow spread across the sky, and Balder rode the heavens again, and Frigga wept with joy. You shall wear my grateful tears forever, mistletoe, she said, and for your service to me and all the world, you shall be forever a symbol of goodwill. No weapon shall be drawn beneath you. Under your bows there will be only goodwill, love, and when you'll give one of my berries to a lover, with it he can buy a kiss. So says the old pagan legend of the mistletoe. We wish you a merry Christmas. We wish you a merry Christmas.
1: We wish you a merry Christmas. And a happy Yeah, the-
0: You'll be glad to hear about the Christmas-inspired ideas from this friend of ours. Mistletoe bough, in olden time, was honored in many a sacred rhyme by bards and singers of high degree. When cut from its place on the old oak tree, by white-robed druids with a golden knife, for they thought it the magical tree of life. Holy vow was solemnly sworn on the mistletoe. The mistletoe bough the looks down amid echoes of mirthful song. Where hearts make me whose pulse keeps time to the dancers' feet. The eyes are brighter with looks of love than gems outshining the lamps above. And who is she that will not allow a kiss claimed under the mistletoe bough?